All right, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. Really grateful to have you back again today. I'm up early this morning recording this because I was too excited to do anything else today. I wanted to record this episode and go through these uh, items. In this podcast, we talk about collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We also talk through ideas relating to architecture and try to get in the mind of architects and designers. This is for the benefit of property owners who have a piece of land you're looking to develop or you own a building you want to add to or alter. Or if you're a business owner renting a commercial tenancy, my hope is that this podcast will provide some insights that give you confidence to work with architects and other collaborators or at least just listen in and enjoy what we're talking about. Similarly, these insights are help consultants, engineers, planners, uh, contractors, fellow architects, students of architecture, artists, musicians, anyone looking to collaborate with architects. Okay, in the last episode, what did we work through? We discussed, as I said, this idea of why. Why work with an architect. And we're answering that two ways. One, what is it that an architect does? You know, I want to work with an architect and I'm going to invest this time and money. I want to know what it is that they do. I'm going to collaborate them with them, whatever it might be. You know, what, what it is it that architects do and why do they do it? Now, this is something that's going to be answered over multiple episodes. I dare say that it would take a lifetime to really go through everything that an architect does and thinks about. We're going to talk about some high level parts though. And similarly for why we do what we do, it's the same problem. Uh, but I'm certainly going to talk through at some point why I do what I do, you know, what um, compels me to keep working as an architect. And when I get my guests on, it's going to be a repeat discussion, maybe so much so that I do get the author of this concept of finding your why, Simon Sinek on at some point. Now, I was gonna talk about uh, the next step after you've met your architect and talk, spoken about the four pillars pertaining to your project vision, your return, your brief, which we make a return brief, time, cost, quality, and quantity. I was gonna dive straight into that super exciting stage, which is concept design. Uh, but as I was thinking about this episode, I thought eh, there's a little bit of a backstory I need to give. I need to talk about the idea of design a little bit before I talk about a concept design for your site specific space for your place. Um, and that concept design episode is, is really exciting. I'm probably going to get emotional. I'm probably going to get effusive. It's probably going to get dramatic. This is the nature of Michael Clark for anyone that knows me and has worked with me, I do have a tendency to be quite dramatic. I, I did at one point want to be an actor. I didn't quite get there, but I certainly did plays and the like at university. I really love presenting, I love lecturing. And uh, in a way I got there sort of by marrying an actor who no longer is an actor, but maybe I partly realized that vision of becoming an actor by having my uh, life partner 
be an actor. Anyway, I'll stop digressing. So the concept design episode is exciting, but first I want to talk about the idea of design and specifically for architecture. What we're designing is the everyday. You know, we're putting meaning, we're putting, we're rationalizing, we're intellectualizing, if you like, the everyday. And for my friends at school, as I um, went through my degree, that became frustrating for my, my um, colleagues that I worked with, um, for people I socialized with, for my relatives. I became a little bit more annoying because I had this curiosity in regards to, to design, to the, to the design of the everyday. I'm going to talk about that um, more in a second, but it, it's uh, the thought behind this episode and explaining this design idea came from me recalling my very first week of university where I was studying architecture and the subject was architectural theory and it was run by a fantastic lecturer called Harry Stevens. And Harry, if you are out there listening, hello. If anyone has access to Harry, please uh, message me. I'd love to get him on the show. I'd love to reach out to him. It's been a long time. I loved my degree. I had some fantastic teachers. Hopefully I can get uh, some of them on this podcast to talk through some of those things I discovered. Um, but Harry spoke in this first week of university, you know, and first week's so important. You're like, oh. you know, my idea of an architect was so far removed from reality <laughs> when I started studying. You know, an architect had worked on the house I lived in and I had an image of what an architect does, which is maybe a little bit of an origin story as to why I now want to talk through this for everyone else, because I was wrong. You know, my understanding of what architects did and architectural training, architectural focus was so wrong. And it's and, and that the tide turning, the pivot point for me was almost um, this first presentation from Harry Stevens, where he spoke about this idea of design. And he spoke about the definition of design. I thought, oh, wow, if you're doing something creative and responding to a problem, let's talk about the meaning of the thing that you're looking at. You know, what does design mean? What's the definition of design? We did this a lot at university. You know, the spring point for our design, for our resolution, for our concept came from looking at dictionary definitions, right? And he said that design comes from the Latin word to um, designare which is to designate. Design, designare, is to designate all things and no things for a purpose. And this was like, you know, rap battles weren't really a thing back then, but I think about it now in terms of just how it really opened my mind. You know, just that one sentence was a microphone drop moment for me. Whoa. We're thinking about, with design is consideration. We're consideration what we include, what is, and what isn't. And it was also important in that lecture that um, one of the more radical students in the group, who was, you know, really incredible thinker, he was a mature age student, so he probably had a little bit more mileage on us in terms of his intellectual maturity um, and his level of discernment. He put his hand up when Harry said this straight away. Harry drew two intersecting circles on the board and said, you know, here's all things and here's no things. 
and here's the intersection where you decide what is going to be in them and not. And um, this colleague, whose name was Scott, forgotten his last name, and Scott, if you're out there, I'd, I'd love to reconnect. Um, he said, I'd like to go to heaven before I die. And I was like, wow, what's this guy saying? This is just so random and almost like trying to say something for the sake of it. But Harry's point almost sounded like omnipotent, like godlike. I am going to decide what is and what isn't. And it was a bit of a joke from Scott, like, hey, um, yeah, I'd like to go to heaven before I die because you're this person that determines situations. Anyway, that's a little side story. The point is that there's a process of excavating uh, the, the definition, excavating for ideas by going to the definition, the source. And what is design? Design is designation of all things and no things for a purpose. Now, as I went through university, as I was saying, I became more and more curious as to whether uh, things around us, the everyday, had actually been designed and how well they'd been designed, which is to say how well they had been considered. You know, one aspect is do they work? Another aspect is do they complement the overall potential vision, the world framing uh, creative exercise that a designer has done for the purpose of that item. That's a lot of words there, but let's put that in context. You know, I'm sitting here at the moment looking at a window. You know, what's the meaning of a window? What's the definition of a window? What does it mean to place a window in a wall? And the window I'm looking at has a lot of, in my mind, awkward parts, right? From a detailing perspective. And, you know, it works keeps the wind out, it keeps the rain out, it allows me to see out to the world, there's an insect screen. But there's a lot of parts that I find a little bit jarring. It's not centered in the room. Half of it looks out to a wall in front of me and the other quarter looks out to actual open sky. So is it particularly well designed in the context of this overall room? Not sure. And these are things that I constantly was doing in those first years as I was developing this skill set of understanding design. In a restaurant, those lights are in an awkward position and I don't really like the color rendering. You know, then they're very cool lights, they're not very warm lights. I'd get people on the topic of lights saying, Michael, what do you think of these lights? I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of down lights to my room. I'm, I would upset the apple cart and say, I don't really like down lights. I don't like putting things on the ceiling or putting down lights on the ceiling anyway. And they're like, whoa, hold on. I just want you to look at this. And I'm like, yeah, but what does it mean to have stuff on the ceiling? And this is the design of the everyday, right? And the context of things on the ceiling, like, you know, an architectural response that a lot of us are interested in is to just keep the ceiling clear of cut clutter. You know, there's some special public spaces in in Sydney and multiple places that just, you know, these huge volumes that have nothing on the ceiling. And that's a design exercise. How do you get the stuff that usually goes on a ceiling off the ceiling to make it free, which adds to a quality to a space? This is design. You know, every day you go into a space that has a ceiling. Every day you open a door, close a door, use your bathroom, use your shower, use your kitchen. Okay, and as architects, as um, designers of site-specific spaces, places, we put value on that. We consider that. 
that is a design exercise. What handle? Where's the door? How tall is the door? Where's it positioned in the room? What are the relationships? And you might say, oh, well, I've never really thought about that. I don't really put value on that. And maybe you don't. And that's okay. But when you engage with your architect and you engage in this design exercise, which is really exciting, we might say, yeah, what if we did it this way? What does that mean for the quality of the space? Let me show you a version of where that's done before. And let me ask how this resonates with you compared to what you have. And it becomes frustrating. Oh man, it's Michael, it's just a light. Yeah, but what impact does a light have to your space? And um, the reason I'm talking about this is that design for us starts at high level concept, right? Concept design, we're talking about relationships, room to room, room to window, outside to inside, overall heights, volume, mass, scale, right? But it doesn't stop there. That's the spring point. That's the starting point. It keeps going right the way through to you getting the keys from the builder. Okay, the design focus narrows, you know, ideally when a builder's putting the finishing touches and the, um, on the build, we're not gonna say actually this bathroom's too small or this kitchen's too, um, the ceiling's too low in the kitchen. There's some consequences in making big design changes at that point, but we're still potentially considering design. Builder says, you've put down this gloss level for the floor. It's quite glossy. Is that really what you want? Wow, good point. Client, architect, let's consider this in the context of our overall um, uh, world framing exercise relating to that vision. No, it actually doesn't work um, for whatever reason. And that's something we'll be talking through when we go through uh, what it is that we do at each stage. Design doesn't stop at that first concept design phase. We're still thinking, we're still considering all things and no things for some purpose. Um, and we'll go into that in, in more detail. As I said, this really annoyed some colleagues and friends. And I was thinking about this as I was walking down the street the other day, uh, coming out of university, uh, where I had actually just taught some students, uh, second year students in interior architecture, who are designing a cafe. Hello, um, guys from my class, where we're talking about this idea of uh, developing a cafe and picking materials and placing elements, not just because it's cool. That doesn't work, right? If I tell you what I think is cool, what I think is good versus what someone else thinks is good, and my rationale is um, instinct, instinct, instinctual, alone, then it's going to be an objective argument. And yeah, uh, you know, proportions and the like is somewhat objective an argument still, but it's based on years of education, of knowledge, of testing. And so what I'm encouraging students to do and what we were encouraged to do as well as students is to put meaning behind these decisions. Like I pick a stone because it relates to some idea relates to some idea of a, a natural environment that recalls the ocean or some green hues are recalling some organic um, form. And these are very simple examples. I'm not going to go into detailed examples. I look forward to hearing what my students come up with. But the point I'm trying to make is that we are 
putting meaning behind the everyday. A bench top to a kitchen is the everyday. And we're going to put meaning behind that. And that comes with um, a price tag in terms of what we're offering to collaborators and clients um, that's important to think about. And I say that because if you start to move away from this and think purely in terms of the time pillar, the four pillars of project realization, and think about this in the context of time and the time taken it equates to the cost, you're going to lose something. Because really, when you're working with a designer who places value, rationalizes, considers the everyday and you say how long does it take you to design a door how long does it take you to design the relationship of rooms to rooms i'm looking at your fee proposal i'm looking at uh, that number i'm not going to give you a number but that number divided by um hours right which i don't know the hours taken but i'm going to divide it by your hourly rate and I'm going to get some hours and I'm looking and thinking that's a lot of hours because it's a big number. But that's a flawed exercise, right? When we were students, one of my lecturers made this point about, you know, us asking the question, you know, how long should things be taking? And design, that creative exercise of design, in my opinion, is not binary, right? I know colleagues at university that could come up with a design idea that had quite a bit of merit in an hour, two hours. And I know others that took days. And so um, the lecturer who spoke to us about this said that, you know, it's sort of binary for other maybe tasks. You know, you put four hours, five hours, six hours of effort into writing an essay. The return on investment, the return on time spent will play out in how how good your essay is and you know it is somewhat binary in some respects you know um but not in regards to ideas right at the concept design phase we're not producing a lot of content and so if you think about it in terms of hours it's flawed what we're producing what we're putting in front of you is years of developed ideas tested and now refocused in the context of your vision that we're framing in our world using my business coach's terminology. And that's a, a creative undertaking. We're creatively responding to your vision by framing it in our world. And how long that takes, don't really know. Um, but it's flawed to think about it in terms of hours spent. Now, um, one of the other things I wanted to talk through, just to give you examples of design exercises, I spoke about the everyday. Uh, I had a friend in first year, sorry, I had a school friend who saw what I was going through at university and you know, I picked him up one day on the way to surfing. And he said, hey, Clarks, I wasn't Michael to a lot of friends, I was Clarky or Clarks. Uh, what do you reckon we should do for a new design for the Australian flag? And it was quite a um, simple question, you know, as far as he was concerned, right? It's the Australian flag. Now, it wasn't a political question, and I'm not going to talk about it in terms of politics. 
This isn't a political forum. I know that is a political issue, but he was just talking about it from a graphic design exercise. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> in a funny way, when he was asking me his thoughts, he, he really wanted to just talk about his thoughts. And he, he uh, I, I was rattled. I was really rattled. I thought, wow, so, such a good question. And I thought not in terms of what I would, uh, what the design would be. I thought in terms of the structure of the response, how I would develop a process to be able to respond based on what I'd learned at university at the time. And so I'd look at the definition of a flag. I'd look at the constraints involved in flag design, like flags are mass produced, right? They're, they're everywhere. And graphic designers would probably love to chime in here, you know, like how thick are the lines going to be? What color are they? Where, how are they spaced? How is the rectangle divided? How are the stars arranged? What are the proportions? You know, this is a, actually a massive undertaking, a lot of consideration. The end result looks like something simple, right? And not necessarily time consuming. How long would it take? I'm looking at the, the, um, the flag for, you know, like, um, let's think of an example that's just a few lines. The, the flag for Austria, right? Three lines on a page. You know, I could do that tomorrow. That's not the point. The point is how long did it take to come up with that idea? How wide are those lines? Are they vertical? Are they horizontal? Are they slightly diagonal? As is the case for the Republic of the, I think that says Congo. Um, sorry, I'm not super well versed on, on flags and some of my graphic designer colleagues might be recoiling here. Oh, Michael, um, hopefully I'll get them on and, and um, put more meaning and, and better insights into this. The point I'm trying to say is that he had a design almost quickly. Like he thought, oh, a couple of lines, I'll do this, this, and that'll work. And to me, that's not enough. Like this is something so important to countries, so important to the world. It's got to be highly considered and thought through. And all I could do was, you know, almost be unsettled and think, oh, geez, what would I do? Well, I'd think of all those things I just discussed. And that's what we do in terms of your space in terms of your site-specific space, your place. We get your vision and we use these uh, things we've learned through uh, university and um, practical experience as drivers for us to be able to respond with confidence. And I say that, and I'm gonna talk about this in the concept design, it's important to note that there's an element of fear associated with concept design. Certainly on my part as architect, and definitely on the part of clients. And I say that um, not to worry anyone. I say that to actually um, help humanize the process, right? We're humans. And it's natural to think, I'm entrusting this person with the design of the backdrop to my life, my kitchen, my bathroom, where my kids are going to play, where my pets are going to be, how I'm gonna spend time um, with my partner, you know, are they really worth it? Are they worthy of, of doing this? And that's good. It's good to have that level of uncertainty, you know, hopefully the uncertainty isn't, you know, huge, but it's right to have a healthy level of, um, fear. And similarly as architect, I'm not sure that 
I can come up with something that really resonates with this person. And that's also healthy for me because it maintains focus. I can't get complacent. This is an important undertaking, right? But what I am confident, where there is confidence for me, is that I have a process developed from university way back from Harry Stevens telling me about the definition of design that I've developed over the years and still developing. I have a process that I'm confident will get me to an outcome where there's a discussion to be had. Now, um, I want to leave with a short story that Harry Stevens also shared with us in that first lecture in the history, sorry, in architectural theory. And it's, uh, I actually looked it up since because I, I wondered, um, I couldn't recall where he got it from. He certainly didn't make it up, but it's an old, um, it's a tale from old China. And as I said before, I have a flair for the dramatic, um, and I'm going to embellish this story a little bit because it helps me think through it. And um, all my colleagues that might be listening that studied with me, you might say, oh, I remember this story. It was such a great first lecture. And um, this story was part of it. I've told it since to some of my first year students. I haven't told it for many years. But anyway, it, the end result is a focus on practice makes perfect and process makes perfect. But let's not get to that. Let's get into the story. And it's, a, it's a not a very long story, okay? Um, the, a king, um, and sorry, let's just make a, put a little bit of context here. I'm probably going to put a little bit of a Game of Thrones spin on this story. It is from old China, but for me, um, just to work through it and embellish it a little bit, I'm likening it to Game of Thrones without the debauchery and the violence. So a king in um, all the lands, uh, don't know if it's Joffrey or whoever, he wanted a painting of a rooster in his throne room. And so he set his um, servants the task of finding the greatest painter in all the lands. And you might say, oh, well, that's a bit of a shortfall. Just because someone's a great painter doesn't mean that they're going to do the best painting of a rooster. Maybe it's better to look for someone who has in-depth knowledge of animals and has drawn animals. I've got a colleague, um, Antoinette, who is a trained architect who commissions, uh, she takes commissions to do drawings of pets. I'd probably think of her in the context of this story as being very well placed to do a painting of a rooster. Hey, Antoinette, if you're listening. Um, but anyway, they found the greatest painter in all the lands and it was, a, it was a woman and she was put in front of the king and he briefed her. He gave her his vision. And you might also say, I'm sorry to be a little bit flippant or facetious here, like, wow, did you really need to say that to me? One of your servants could have just said, I want a painting of a rooster. It's a fairly simple brief in some respects, but uh, let's take this seriously. It's a serious discussion thread, okay? Um, and she said, that's fine. Uh, and she gave him some terms and conditions, which unsettled the king, of course. You know, I'm the king. And she said, look, uh, I can do this. Please just leave me alone in my quarters um, so I can work on it. He said that that's fine. Okay. He probably imagined in a perfect world, she'd be producing it whilst sitting next to him or standing next to him. But she said no. Okay. And she went to her quarters, which for the purpose of this story uh, is away from the castle. And off she went. Six months passed and the king wanted an update, right? You know, the four pillars of project realization, one of them is time. The king 
wanted an update. Time's passing. You know, my throne room still doesn't have a painting of a rooster. It's fair enough. So he sent one of his second-in-charge guards and maybe the hand. <laughs> the hand, which is Tyrion Lannister. So Tyrion Lannister and the guard are going down to just have a conversation. And she says, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm not finished. And they say, well, that's unacceptable. We just want to see the progress. And she said, no, I, please, I can't show you. Trust me, I'll, I'll get it done. You know, she's not doing other things, by the way. It's not like her workload is uh, necessarily such that she's looking at other commissions and trying to slot in this thing for the king. This is all she was doing. And so they go away and let's just make it extreme now, like another year and a half passes. Um... Sorry, another year passes, so we're at the year and a half mark. And Tyrion again goes down. You know, if it's Tyrion Lannister and you know Game of Thrones, he's probably come with some wine. <laughs> and he's trying to charm this person and, you know, she takes the wine and they have a casual chat, but she still maintains that she can't show him anything. There's no work in progress to unveil. Please just leave me to it. And begrudgingly, Tyrion says, okay, and... Um, they finish the wine, um, and back he goes and to report to the king. Now, uh, we're at the two-year mark, and the king's had enough. So the king is going to take his uh, lead knight, you know, Jamie Lannister. And down they go. I'm sorry if anyone's not a Game of Thrones fans, by the way. The head knight is going down with the king, with the hand, the king's um, most trusted advisor, and he's irate. Two years. A painting, two years, right? Um, before they knock on the door, she opens up the door. Okay, I'm ready. King, unsettled, like, oh, wow, what, what timing? You know, this is Michael dramatizing things. Um, and I apologize if this is unsettling for some people, but it's just the way I work. Um, she comes out with it's clearly a canvas, but it's covered. And he's like, I, I want to see it. And she's like, no, let's put it up in the throne room and unveil it. And she's struggling with it. You know, it's a decent-sized canvas, hard to hold by yourself. And so that she, the king instructs the guards to help her. And off they go to the throne room. And he wants to make a spectacle of this, right? The unveiling is about to happen. So he invites some of his... Um, uh, respected guests and people of the community that are supporters of the king, whatever, in the throne room to unveil the painting. They put it up where it's going to be hung, still with the cover, with the cloth cover. The king's still a little bit annoyed that it's covered, but, you know, here we go. Trumpets, drums, unveiling, go. She pulls the cover off and it's a blank canvas. There's nothing on it. Now, I love the imagery of this. You could imagine this king, if it's Joffrey, if it's a mad king, is just immediately off with her head. How dare you insult me? I asked you to do something. Not only have you taken years to get to this point, but there's nothing on that canvas. How embarrassing. The hand who's, you know, an, an open-minded kind of individual, says, wait, she wishes to speak. Now, I forgot to add a really important point. That when they were walking up, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get points here for quality directorship. Um, when they uh, walked up, 
she, the artist, had um, paintbrushes and paint colours, right? And the king thought this was kind of odd. We're coming to this unveiling. The work's finished and you're bringing tools. What are you going to do? Some touch-ups if I don't like the colour. Um, she said, wait, 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 wait. Before you take off my head, wait. And she pulled out the paintbrushes and, and the paints. And in five to 10 minutes, climbed up a ladder, five to 10 minutes, didn't take her five to 10 minutes to climb up the ladder. She got up the ladder and in five to 10 minutes proceeded to complete the greatest painting of a rooster anyone had ever seen. Now the king and the guests were two part, uh, sorry, one part incredulous, one part excited that she'd done what they'd asked. And their incredulity, their disbelief as to why something that took five to 10 minutes took two years to get on, to get to complete. Um, and she said, let me explain. Cause the king was just like, why if that took you five to 10 minutes in real time in labor, did it take two years to get to this point? You could have done that two years ago. And she asked him to come and look at her quarters. And he went down with Tyrion to go and look at his quarters. Now he's, he's you know, he's still elated from the quality of this painting, right? But he's, oh God, I gotta get out of my throne again and go and check this out and no discredit to anyone that thinks kings are important, please. I'm just trying to dramatize the situation. I'm, I'm designing the, the story because that's me. And down they went and they opened the quarters. And inside the quarters, it was a mess, a mess or organized mess of stuff, of rooster bones, rooster feathers, sketch after sketch after sketch, thousands of sketches on the wall on pages of roosters, thousands of paintings on the wall and the ceiling on pages of roosters at varied scales, varied angles, varied qualities of light and color. You know, a clear set of, um, uh, let me rephrase that. There's clearly a process there. She undertook a process to get to a point where the end result was both convincing, credible, or incredible, in fact, and that's what got her to that point. And so, as I said in the spoiler, I suppose, is that, you know, what's the message here? The message is, um, in fact, I'm reading it on here. The, the, the takeaway here is life is short, art is long. Um, but I guess what I take away from this, obviously, is practice makes perfect, okay? But I think also here, process makes perfect. And so over the years of testing design, we as architects, as designers, have developed a process to get us to that point. And you can't look at that process in terms of hours because it might have taken this person two years to produce something that took 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, you're like, well, I only have to pay for 15 minutes of time, but actually you're paying for two years of intellectual property. And you've got to think about that in the context of design the same way especially that concept design phase. What I'm paying for is years of discovery of intellectual property that this architect, this designer has worked through, even though um, 
it might not be a lot of content. And because it's not a lot of content, I think of it as not a lot of hours, not a lot of labor. Okay. All right. I'm going to leave you with those points. Thank you. <laughs> I've sort of quite worked up and imagining reaching out to some director now to um, realize this um, in the next Game of Thrones series, though I'll have to get my directorship a lot tighter. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, talking through these ideas of designing the everyday and the process involved in working through the design of the everyday and how you value that as collaborator, as client. I hope you found this exciting. If you have uh, or relevant, if you do, please uh, rate it. Please send it to friends and colleagues that might be interested. I look forward to seeing you next time where we talk through what we're doing in the concept design phase, the concept of a concept design. Thank you again for taking the time out of your day. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. See you then.